looking to teach today. Brother Hill saved this lesson for me because he knew I liked it. And it's Amos the Lion's Roar. And uh, he bypassed it because he knew that I, I, liked, I liked Amos' prophet. Uh, and I like I liked his background. I like the way he was. And I, I'm just always, I reread this particular uh, book over and over and over again because it just, it gives hope to people. You know, you, you come out, sometimes you think that uh, I can't be a preacher. I don't have the blue blood. You know, I, I, I don't have it two or three generations down and I can't be one. I've known, known young men who have thought that way. And uh, Amos lets you know that it doesn't matter if you're a blue blood or not. If God calls you, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. And so it's, a, it's just a great book. And looking at Amos 1, 1, and then 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, 10, and, and 13, 15 verses, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah. Now this is when he prophesied during the days of King Uzziah, who was king of Judah. And then the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So he was uh, prophesying during Uzziah for, for Judah or, and, and, uh, and then uh, Joash, uh, who was king over Israel at the time. This was two years before the earthquake. Thus saith the Lord, for three, verse 3, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with a threshing instrument of iron. Verse 4 says, But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Geza, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire on the wall of Geza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Verse 9 Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send a fire on the walls of Tyrus which shall devour the palaces thereof. Verse 13. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle with the tempest in the days of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity and he and his princes together saith the Lord. And Amos 1-2 says, And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion. Utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Lord bless you. You may be seated. We talk a lot about the judgments, and you hear a lot of terms, uh, terminology, uh, and have in times past, and you still do from preachers um, about God's judgments. And God's judgments are very real, very, very real. But they are also under his control, and they are done for his purposes. And just for the sake of clarification, I, and, and I hold with this, judgment, real judgment, what we define it as, something terrible, tragedies, you know, a, a judgment, I, I don't think we really understand them because these are going to happen at the end time. 
okay, after the church is taken out of here. Now, what we call judgment is sometimes chastisement. And chastisement is done for us, according to the Bible, so that we can learn and we can grow. And so, so we look at, you know, and you see this. You see this a lot. You hear people talk about it. For instance, one of them is some believe that New Orleans was flooded uh, by Katrina because of the sin of the city. But could it have been because the planners did not prepare levees, pumps, and canal network properly for the massive hurricane that would inevitably come? I mean, you just think about it. Others believe the World Trade Center was destroyed because of America's sin. But could it have been because of the vengeful activity of evil terrorists? Yes, God did allow it. And yes, God did create good and he did create evil. Because without those would never be choices. And without choices, what value would we be? That great thing about, and I, I've made this statement earlier one time, I think one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, outside of the fact that he came into flesh and died for our sins, but the greatest gift he's given us is choice. You know, that we make a choice. We can follow and do whatever we want to do, but we make a choice of living for God and living righteously. And God gets so much pleasure out of the fact that we have that choice and we make the right ones. You know, we, we keep looking. Some people are quick to pronounce God's judgment upon bad people when they are uh, sick or they suffer loss. But what do we call it when believers suffer sickness and loss? What is it? Well, you know, it's okay. That's just God trying us. But you look at the bad people out there, that's just God judging them. Do you understand how bad that can be? Do you understand that? It would be real. I remember, well, just, just, I said this this past week. I had a, uh, I had a, actually talked about it twice. It was a couple that came and it was the ones who run the camp. And they said, he, he told me this. And then his wife told me separately that they'd gone to church with uh, one of the family members. And, they, of course, it was one of those churches that served communion every Sunday. Well, they took communion, and the aunt, who they went with, absolutely went ballistic because they took communion. Well, I understand why that she went ballistic to a degree, you know, understanding why that she, she did have some teaching on the subject. But they, they start asking me, why did my aunt go ballistic? So I said, well, it's because, and I went, I went to uh, 1 Corinthians 11 chapter, and, and I told him, I said, it's because you can take it, uh, you know, unto, and then I said, because the, the, the proper terminology there, you can take it unto judgment, but it actually judgment is when God chastises you. It says it in that chapter. And so I, I told him, and I explained to them, I said, you did it ignorantly. You know, I'm calling them ignorant people, but, you know, that... <laughs> But I, I qualified that remark. I said, you didn't know what you were doing, you know. And, and I said, it, it's, uh, don't, don't worry about it. But I said, she had some, some more teaching and understanding of the subject. And I said, that's the reason that she did. I said, she probably went over the top, but that's why she did what she did. But, you know, you realize that there's a lot of times because we know what we know. That we look at everybody else who does things just ignorantly or they, you know, they don't have a clue. They're just going along with the crowd. And, and they do things and we quickly pass judgment on them, but understand that God does not really begin to judge us until we get into the church. Judgment begins in the house of God. According to God, the people outside of that are dead. They're dead in sins and trespasses. So, so the fact remains, yes, they're judged in the fact, but they have an opportunity. And when people begin to point fingers and judge others in that manner, you know, you're judging dead people. 
What you need to be doing is helping those dead people to live again. That's what you need to be doing, and that's what God expects out of us. So we look at this. You know, when, when tragedy befalls believers, it works in tandem with all other things in their lives to accomplish good. Paul said, and we know that all things uh, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose in Romans eight twenty eight. You know, it may rain on the just and the unjust, according to Matthew 5.45, but the, the purpose achieved differs. Okay, so you've got the just people that gets the rain, that's us, right? And then you've got the unjust, that's a sinner. But they get the same rain, the same thing falls on both of them. But what happens here is what it achieves. God disciplines the righteous. And sometimes he does punish the wicked. We do know he does that. He does punish the wicked. So the same tragic event can be punishment for the sinner and an opportunity for growth for the believer. It's the status with God that makes the difference. If God passes some kind of chastisement, judgment, per se, on the, on the, on the wicked, the sinner, if you would, it is to try to drive them for, for answers. And that's what I really dealt with. I, I, in, in all of this, in this past week, God began to deal with me about the end times and how people are, are concerned with what they're seeing and what's going on. And, and, and God began to deal with me a great deal on that in as much as that you're going to see, and with this, with this particular lesson, you're going to see men of God, truth-preaching preachers that are going to begin to prophesy and, and in the terms of end times. You're going to see that, and it's going to happen within the next four years. You're going to hear about it. You're going to read about it. And these are not just quacks that are off the top and off the television. These are people who are truth preaching. The Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon men in this next four years like you have never seen the Spirit of the Lord come upon them before. Because God loves each and every one of us, and it's not His will that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. You're going to see people that believe truth prophesying. There's going to be things awakened in people. Awakened. There's going to be people that have put things aside and it's going to wake up and all of a sudden they're going to be in Amos and they're going to go forth and they're going to prophesy like you've never heard before. This is the proof that God says, I love the people that are out there and I love my people. He's going to use you like you never... Give Him a hand. Thank you, Jesus. And I see it. I see it. You, and I think all of us understand it. Let's look at Amos for a moment. Uh, the, the biographical details of, of Amos exist only in what he shared in his writing. There's absolutely no corroboration or supporting evidence for the details. That he told us he was not a prophet. This is what he told us. He was not a priest or a religious professional. Instead, he earned his living as a shepherd, according to uh, a uh, Hassel Bullock, who, who wrote a book on the Old Testament prophetic books. Uh, it says that his flocks may have been a breed of short-legged sheep that produce very fine wool. And uh, he was also, Bible says together, of sycamore fruit. Now, a lot of people have wondered about the sycamore. You know, we think about sycamores. Well, if you, any woodsman at all, it's those big white trees out there, and if you ever cut one down... It dulls your chainsaw. If you ever try to split one, you'll have back trouble the rest of your life. And so you, that, that's what we consider, but this is not the same thing. Because it says after the desert pastures had dried up in late summer, it said the shepherds of Tekoa would lead their flocks to western Judah, where the grass was still green. And it said that fig trees grew in this area. 
So landowners would trade grazing rights for labor. So the sycamore fig was smaller than the common fig, and since it did not taste as sweet, it generally was eaten by the poor people. Nonetheless, it said it needed to be pinched or pierced about four days before harvesting so it would ripen completely. Amos did not claim to be a prophet or the son of a prophet, but clearly there was more to Amos than than sheep and figs. There was a great deal more to him. He could speak well, he could write well, and especially when anointed by the Spirit of God. And by divine compulsion, he left his flocks behind, crossed the border into Israel, and began to preach at Bethel, one of the centers of the corrupt state religion established by Jeroboam. No one had ever seen Amos so stirred up. They had never witnessed such a ferocious manner and tone. And it says that he roared out God's message like a lion, and God was the lion. So he was roaring this thing out. He, didn't, he, he wanted them to know what was going on. You know, humanity, folks, is, is, is reaching to always for improvement. Uh, you know, our, our country is, is great based on that, and a lot of people do very, very well because of the, uh, the passion that Americans have to, to reach for improvement. They look for growth. They look for profit. And we organize and prepare and plan for better days and times. But th- this is the whole point. You know, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of how well you plan, catastrophe can strike. Boom, everything can go out the door. Every plan goes. It can strike. It can strike suddenly and swiftly. You could consider some of the earthquakes and the hurricanes and other natural disasters that strike our world so unexpectedly and ruthlessly and with devastating consequences. The total impact often requires days, weeks to assess. And some would say that these are the judgments of God. And some say that they're merely acts of nature. And some don't even know what's going on. Which one do you fit in? You ever wonder about it sometimes? You know, you hear all these conflicting tales. I believe this is God doing this, and I believe that this is an act of nature. Uh, and then, you, you know, you kind of sit there and scratch your head and say, well, I don't know, you know. So I, I will be the first one to admit that sometimes it's best to just keep your mouth shut, put your head down, go on, okay? Uh, and other times is, you know, God, let your will be done. That's the most releasing, relieving prayer that you will ever pray. God, your will be done. You know, if it's your will, and we don't like the fact that some catastrophe may hurt us, hit us. We don't like it, and we hurt, we whine, we cry, we pray, we do all. But sometimes there's not a thing that we're going to be able to do about it. And the Bible does say that God gave us dominion over this earth. We're to subdue this earth. And we've made a mess out of this earth. And I'm not a Greenpeace person. But we have. And you look at some of the things that, that, that go on, and it's no wonder we have some of the problems. And, and when it comes right down to it, no matter what you do, there's going to be there, there's, there's something that God has already ordained, and we're going to go that direction no matter what. And so you just say, God, I want my family protected, church protected. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to see people hurt. I don't want to. But also, God, I don't want to see this. I, I'm ready for this thing to wind down, and I believe within the next four to five years we're going to see it wind down. I, I really do. So we just pray, God, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So you see the impact of some of this. And again, some people just don't know what to, what to do. And regardless of how we categorize the events, the, the results are dire, the presentation violent, and the effects often lasting. 
The law before the storm deceives many pe people into apathy and contentment and delusion. Do you ever think that that's what happens? Do you ever think we get into that, you know, we're, they keep telling us we're coming out of this recession right now. Well, you know, maybe we are, maybe we're not. But regardless, you get lulled. Well, everything's going to get better. Everything's fine. And so everybody goes back to what they were before. And the Bible says at a time that you think not, the Son of Man cometh. So it's not going to be in the midst of disasters. You know, the disasters are going to hit, but there's going to be a lull. And then the Lord's going to come. Then, if you forgive me, all hell's going to break loose. That's, a, that's what is going to occur, folks. And so we, we have to be ready and not be lulled to sleep because things are going better for us. Amos began preaching in Bethel. The first city of consequence across Israel's border from Judah. And his Israelite audience must have agreed with him. You ever, I love this one. This is you. <laughs> you hear preachers, you watch for years, you know, you, you see congregations. I watch them from up here. You get a preacher up here, an evangelist, and he's preaching in, in some pet project of the certain amount of people, you know. It, it, it can be anything, you know. It can be, uh, it can be a clothesline message, and the people are big on the clothesline, you know. Hallelujah, thank you. Boy, you're right, you know, you got it together. And the next one is the love of God. And the next side over here, oh, you're right, you know, everybody needs to be loved God. Then in the middle section, it's about hell, you know. Oh, yeah, everybody's going to hell, you know. Everybody's hallelujah. That's just what was happening to Amos. You know, Amos is up here preaching. And he was, he, what we're going to call, they were egging him on. They were giving him a lot of hallelujahs, thank you, Jesus, praise the Lord, and all this. And he was castigating the six surrounding nations for their crimes. He was talking about Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. He prophesied good would send a fire to devour the citadels and cut off the inhabitants. However, these foreign nations were not present to hear the message of judgment. They weren't there. He was castigating him, telling them what's going to happen. But they weren't there. They had enjoyed, enjoyed the covenant privileges and the responsibilities of the people of God, but they had basic knowledge of the ethical demands of God through general revelation and were therefore accountable. And most people, regardless of how they were raised, have a general knowledge of right and wrong. Most all of them do. There's a general knowledge. They may push it way back, but they have it. And this group, these, these six nations, they had that. But in chapter 2... Amos transitioned to an accusation against the southern kingdom of Judah for its backsliding. So they were still, oh, yeah, Judah, we don't, they're all good. You know, let them all be good. God devour them, burn them up, do all this. Then he does this for a while. Then he turns on Israel. Then guarantee everything got quiet. You can always tell when the preacher really hits it. Everybody's praised God. You're doing it right. And then when everybody shuts up. All of a sudden, McCormick's Creek Church got nailed. And you know, if the guy up here, if he's listening to God, he keeps on going. If he looks at all your faces, he scares him, he runs out the back door. <laughs> you know, you hit. Everybody likes to believe that we're preaching to the person next to them. Tony believes I'm always preaching, Keith, always. And he just smiles. You know, there was this guy reminding me of you. He was from Jasper, Indiana, and he came up here. He'd never, ever, ever got a bear before. And I come in about 1130 one night, and he's standing in the middle of the lodge, and Terry, the guy, runs it. He said, he got a bear, and that guy turned around. He was bald-headed like you. And he turned around, and his smile was so big. 
I mean, he was absolutely smiling. And I, I don't know why, because I watch you smile a lot. You do that. The only difference between you and him is he had about four or five teeth missing in the front. <laughs> he, he kind of, he, I kind of looked like a jack o' lantern, you know. But <laughs> that guy was so happy. I mean, he was so happy, and I love making a big deal out of it. So I'll go up and shake his hand, congratulate him, you know. And, and, uh, and then, it, you know, it's just, it's just that you can, certain things that hits points for us, you know, that makes us happy. Certain things that uh, is said, and we feel like that we're, we got that one covered. And so we can say, thank you, Jesus, for that. But then the areas that we don't have covered. It's when the preacher begins to preach in those areas. That's when the smile leaves your face. You know, and, 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 and similarly, in, in this situation, we had one more uh, come in. I, I don't know why this stuff is just, I always make a spiritual something out of everything, I guess. But this, this guy came in, and he killed, uh, he got a bear, and we were hanging it up. And like a bunch of idiots, everybody, instead of congratulating the guy, everybody's looking at this thing saying, I, this is how much it weighs. We weren't betting, okay. So everybody had an opinion. And, of course, you know, the thing is, the guy didn't care if it weighed 500 pounds or 100 pounds. So I'm there, and I say 175, someone else is 180. Well, they hung the bear up, well, he weighed 190 pounds. Didn't look like it weighed 190 pounds. And, and I got to looking at that guy before, and he was an older guy, and, you know, he was just happy that he got it. And uh, I finally thought, you know, here we have. And it just hit me. I'm standing there, and I say, here we have. Well, you know, it, I, we didn't mean it to be malicious. But it probably didn't make him feel so good. So I went up to him. I said, you know, you killed one, and none of the rest of us has got one. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the whole point. You know, you, you, you get it. It, it. Sometimes it, it's that way, and I like this spiritually. I've got this down. I understand this. But not everybody does. And sometimes it takes someone to shake us, to hit us, to realize, you know, you may have some understanding on this issue, but how about that one? How about how much do you really know about this? And I don't see you, you know, I don't see you flying off the ground with all your revelation. You know, so, so it's, it's just a matter of, of, of understanding and bringing everything into order that none of us are perfect. Absolutely none of us. So here we go, and he, he told him, he, he'd give them an indictment. And in chapter 3 through 6, Amos turns God's judgment on Israel. The declarative, you only, and I love this. This is God speaking through Amos, and he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth in Amos 3 and 2. He said, Only you have I known. Only you. And yet, though I know you, and though you have, you, you have understanding, look at what you're doing. I've given you every benefit of the doubt. And look at you. What he was doing was he was expressing a special relationship that became a call for punishment because of that relationship. i got to punish you because of this. Spiritual insight and blessings not only bring privileges, but they also bring responsibility. 
And God's faithfulness to the covenant with Abraham hinged upon the family of Abraham blessing the earth. Now, I want you to get this. If you don't get anything else here this morning, get this. I'm going to read this. We all know it in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And it says, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This requirement to be a bestower of blessings was Israel's responsibility. Do you realize that we take that scripture and we we always condemn America because if we're not blessing them, then we're going to... And it is true, but we never finish that out because it was Israel's responsibility to be a blesser as well. Do you think that how the end time is going to come when all the armies surround Israel? It's because, because it's going to come to a point where they're not being obedient to that scripture and they've not been a blessing to others. Now you go over to Israel and what I've heard, I've never been there, but what I've heard is you can find just about every kind of religion you want over there. And here, you know, the people who carry within them in the natural, the truth, the natural people of God themselves. And, and yet they're not. So this is a requirement. Uh, that was their responsibility. And it's not the nation's status. And you see, that's what the nation of Israel has become. It's because of a status. We're Israel. We're God's people. We are distinct. We're special. Status, but not blessing. Do you get it? You can sit in this church and you say, I know the truth. And you can get all haughty about all this. But are you being a blessing to other people? And this is what Jesus contended with in the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Their sins of social injustice, immoral exemptions, and power-hungry greed turned them into a bless-me community rather than a giving community. Give that, uh, giving that is, is self-serving, hear this, and self-perpetuating is not charity. God desires that His people make a global impact, not for personal glory, but so that the world can be saved. We don't give so that everybody can pat us on the back or we can think super good about ourselves. But it's a matter of giving because that's what's right and because by blessing others we're fulfilling what God has given us and what, what to do. It's our responsibility to be blessers, not a bless me. How many times have you ever come to the altar and prayed that prayer? How many people come, God, let me be a blesser. Let me bless others. Not bless me, bless me, but let me be a blesser of others. I've often wondered if you could ever be serious about that, that God wouldn't give you everything you needed because you really mean it. God would give you over an abundance because you blessed other people. Amos 3.10 elaborated on this dilemma. For they know not to do right, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. The sense of personal gain from divine appointment had corrupted the populace. And, and when Amos rec- recounted the blessings of God for his people in chapter 2, he listed a series of interventions and deliverance for all of Israel, not for individuals or certain segments. There was no... No special intervention for priests or kings. There was no particular blessing to a merchant or a shepherd. God's interventions were for God's people as a whole. And too many times in the decision between right and wrong, an individual will insert the question, what is right for me? God hates this self-serving error. He, he, he would have us ask, what is right for the people of God? 
do you understand what I'm saying? And I know we can do this in a microcosm. And, and you think of it. I've made this statement before. But every time I see something of this nature, I think of it. You know, the person that's getting ready to go on a, the picnic today. And, and you ask God, God, I don't want it to rain, but it's not rain in six months. But you want that day for it not to rain. And then that day it rains. Then what are you supposed to do? Oh, God, why did you do this to me? You messed up everything. When, you know, you've got 600, 700, maybe 1,000 people say, God, please let it rain. So, so it's what's right for me, not what's right for God's people. What's right for God's people is what we're looking at. And this is where Israel was messing up. It's a give me, give me, give me, give me. Amos saw a vision of a cloud of locusts poised to descend on Israel in Amos 7 and 1. Locust plagues were a natural phenomenon and a part of Israel's history in times of Israel's backslidings. God had used locust plagues as a, as a call to repent, but lamented, he said, Yet have you not returned unto me in Amos 4 9? Now, worried about Israel's survival, and this is, this is, a, this is a mark of a true man of God. Amos stepped away from his role as a foreteller of judgment and into the role of an intercessor. And he prayed, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small, in Amos 7 and 2. Amos, his intercessory prayer touched the heart of God, and he did not send the locust plague. So because this man who was prophesying, now you think about this. If it's not a true man of God, you've got people who out there, you know, if, I, if I've said it's going to happen, it better happen. I mean, you've got a Jonah instinct. Jonah was mad. And he, he sat underneath a tree because things didn't go the way he wanted them to go, and it made him look bad. But the fact remained that the people in Nineveh repented. And this is what he, he was intercessor. He moved into that role. He said, God, please don't destroy them. I don't care if they believe me or get upset with me or not. Or think I'm a false prophet because it didn't happen. The fact remained that he loved the people enough. He loved them enough to be able to go into the breach, if you would, and pray, God, don't send this locust plague. And God changed his mind. The next one is the devouring fire. And Amos foresaw a great fire consuming Israel. In Israel's dry season, the fire would spread rapidly and drying up rivers and creek beds and destroying vegetation and people and entire villages. Fearful for Israel's total annihilation, Amos again pleaded with God to stay the punishment, and God relented. I want you to note something here, and I'm going to ask you a question. It says here in Amos 7 and 3, uh, you've you got to note God's repentance it said God's repentance. Now, what is God's repentance? Does that mean that he made a mistake and he was sorry for what he was about to do? Anybody? Go ahead.
exactly right yes sir yeah good agreed yeah good very good good you know it does not imply that was a real good definition, but it does not re- imply regret or remorse on his part for his intention to send the first two judgments. Instead, I believe his in repentance underlined his personal involvement in the affairs of his people and that he held them accountable for their actions. It was his involvement. Yes, he knew he was going to change his mind, but he held them accountable for their actions. And that goes back to this accountability. If we do not get accountability down, We're going to be in a mess, personally, each and every one of us. We have to be accountable for some of the decisions that we make. So he held them accountable. You know, he he would not automatically forgive their sins without sufficient evidence of true repentance. All right? I'm holding back the plague. Now let me see fruits meet for repentance that you've changed your mind. That's what he was saying, because it wouldn't be hard for him to go back and destroy them if he wanted to. But now I'm giving you another opportunity. What, what we're talking repentance is one of the greatest examples of God's mercy. Repentance is the opportunity to change your way, your life, your direction. And so many people backslide because they don't get the repentance down right. We push them to throw them in the water and baptize them. We push them to receive the Holy Ghost. And they not truly repented. I know. Now, I'll, I'll be the first one to say this. A person can repent within two minutes if they're sincere. But the sincerity of that repentance, you really mean it. That's what fruits are, meat for repentance. They should, you should show within the next day that you have truly repented of your sins. You should show that. Further, you know, God's repentance indicated... Complete annihilation was not his plan for Israel's salvation. He would preserve, according to Amos 9 and 8, he would preserve a remnant. He was going to preserve a remnant regardless. The next thing we see is a plumb line. A plumb line is 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 a string with a weight tied to the end, and a workman stands on a ladder and he dangles the line until it establishes a straight line against which a straight wall can be built. Amos' vision of a plumb line was not of an external destructive force such as the locust plague or a fire. He saw God holding a plumb line, God's law, against Israel's crooked behavior. God had originally planned that his people would exemplify his holiness to the pagan nations, but instead Israel had persisted in conforming to the vile practices of their neighbors. Israel's multitude of transgressions against God's law made their wall real like a, a drunken man till it threatened to topple. The entire structure was going to come down, and Israel would bring down destruction on her own head because the plumb line of God's law was not being obeyed by Israel. And he was holding this, saying, this is, this is the way you should be, but look at what you're building. Look at how you're building this. And, and it's, it, it's, I, I've, there's one in here, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but there's one in here where God comes in and they see God, Amos sees God on the altar. 
and he's told to strike the lintel of the door. And, you know, at first glance you would think that this is, this is opportunity. But what he was saying is that from the high point to the low point, I'm going to clean house. And, and one other thing. He stands on the altar. There's way too many people that come to the altar not in a repentant attitude. But, again, we go back, bless me, bless my marriage, bless this. I don't care how I'm living, but I expect you to bless me, God. Regardless of how I'm living, I need you to bless me. I had people through the years come down to the altar, and, you know, you go down, you think they're repenting, and actually they just got married, and they're wanting God to bless their marriage, or they're wanting to get pregnant, or, you know, something of that nature. And, you know, not one drop of forgive me, not one drop of I want to change my life. So let me say that regardless of how many times you go to the altar, that doesn't mean that you're right. It's according to what you do when you're at the altar. So we see, we see him with the plumb line. He, throws, he says, you know, and then, <clears throat> then we go to the next one. And, and I love this one, the passage of Amos seven ten through 17. And it, it provides a detailed account of a hostile encounter between Amos and Amaziah, the chief priest at Bethel. Now, Bethel was a center of Israel's religious cult and the seat of a shrine that was dedicated to the golden calf made by Jeroboam I. Amaziah elbowed Amos aside, and he charged him with treason. The priest hurriedly dispatched a messenger to King Jeroboam II with the message that Amos had predicted Jeroboam's death. And Amaziah turned back to Amos, and he sneered at him. He said, you call yourself a prophet? He said, take your so-called prophecies back where you came from and don't show your face here again. And I love what Amos did. He countered this. He said, I never claimed to be a prophet. He said, I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit until God called me and sent me here with a message for his people, Israel. And Amaziah had not expected this kind of direct confrontation from this, this rustic rabble-rouser. He must have recoiled in deep shock when Amos looked at him in the eye and he roared this. He said, you hear the word of the Lord. Then he pronounced defilement of degradation and death upon the house of Amaziah. He was not afraid to claim and push on. He said, because of what you are, you're going to have death in your family it's going to follow you because of what you've done he was not afraid of that you know that's the great thing about coming in from the the fields if you don't get involved too much in all the politics of everything that's involved you're not afraid to say things that god gives you to say are you being a rebel riser robertson rebel rousing robertson that's pretty good r r r i need to put that across my chest Rabble, Rousing, Robertson. You know, you don't care. Now, you think about it. Now, I know sometimes people use this as a way of, of getting what they want. And I know some men, are, uh, they, they're all judgment all the time. There's no mercy. But when it comes to real, true men of God, they cannot be afraid of politics or what somebody's going to think of them when it comes to the truth of God's Word. You've got to preach the truth of God's Word. You can't be afraid of anything that comes against you, anything that would push against you and say, you can't preach that. I've, I've had that happen to, earlier when I, in my... Uh, when I first took the church, I had a man come to me and make that statement. He said, you've got to be careful what you preach. One of the first things I heard when I became pastor. You've got to be careful what you preach. Another pastor telling me this. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you can't preach too hard. And I said, well, I'm going to preach what the Scripture says. And if Scripture's too hard, then I'm sorry. That's just the best I can do. And I have done it for a lot of years now. 
And I will continue to do it because the Bible is the Bible. I love people. I have mercy on people. I give you every chance in the world to do right. But we cannot water down the truth. And we will not water down the truth. I don't want some prophet to come up to me and tell me that, you know, hey, things are going to go bad for you because you're watering it down. <laughs> Boy, believe me, it can happen. You know, and you, you look at this, and, he, I, and I talked about the striking of the lintel and, and what that meant. Um, and you know, regardless of the most devastating visions that God had given to Amos, he assured Amos, he said, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, but would preserve a remnant and someday raise up, raise up the fallen tabernacle of David. The promised future restoration would reverse the punishment of God was about to bring upon Israel. God is a God of mercy, but also of judgment. He bestows mercy on those who come to him with contrite hearts and weeping and repentance. He also expresses mercy and warnings of future judgment, like the lumberjack yelling timber before the tree falls. Prophets sounded the alarm of coming destruction, and after God sent Amos to shout a warning, he gave Israel space to repent. And approximately 30 years elapsed from Amos' prophecy into the Assyrian captivity. So 30 years after he prophesied that, if you got the call of a prophet and it doesn't happen within a week or two, that doesn't mean that God is not going to do what he said he would do. It took 30 years for this. And I don't know how Amos felt within that time frame. I can imagine how you might feel. But you've got to remember what's a year to God. What's a thousand years to God when he sends outside of time and space? He looks in from a place of no time, no space. We're the ones that are dictated to by years. And so 30 years later, everything he said came to pass. But what was that 30 years? 30 years is a space of mercy given to them to repent. Mercy. How many times has God prolonged something because of his mercy? I've often wondered, and maybe it's just me wondering this, but I've often wondered, why, why, Lord, haven't you come? You know, why haven't you come? But I know good and well it's because there's not just us, but churches all over this world that are praying, God, I want my family members saved. I want my husband saved. I want my wife saved. I want that. And, and God, out of his mercy, prolongs because of the way. You know, there's people out there fasting and praying and doing everything to get family members saved. So, you know, it's, it's mercy. It's mercy that extends it and continues. You know, woven into the prophecies of gloom and doom, you see a thread of hope. In the last five verses of the book of Amos, God's long-suffering produced a hope of restoration. Like the, like the dawn after a stormy night, the, the utter destruction of Israel transitioned to a new day, wherein the tabernacle was foreseen as being restored. This tabernacle was not Solomon's magnificent temple, but the temporary dwelling of the Ark of the Covenant that David erected when he brought the Ark back to Jerusalem. The tabernacle of David was his dynasty, which God promised would be established forever before thee, thy throne and the established forever. So would you, when we think about that, because it's Acts 15 that talks about, uh, he said, I will restore the tabernacle of David. It's the book of Acts, the only book of history in the New Testament. which where the church was established. It was in the book of Acts. And he said in the book of Acts, I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. 
a tabernacle of David. Not we, we can say what we want. I believe there will literally be a temple in Israel. I know that. The Bible says that. But the true tabernacle of David is the, is the way David worshipped. It was the way David acted towards God. It's the love that David had. That was his dynasty. That's what the church is supposed to have. He's going to restore. I mean... Where in the Bible all of a sudden you see David dancing as the Ark of the Covenant comes back. You see him dancing there. All through the Psalms you see we know how to worship because of what David did. So it's David's dynasty. It's David's dynasty which will continue on until the son of David, Jesus Christ, comes up and the millennial reign sets himself upon the throne ruling over the earth. So we are a part of that dynasty when we come to God and we, we worship the son of David, Jesus Christ. We worship Him and love Him in the manner that David did. That's why Jesus said that all things must be fulfilled that was written in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And for people to try to take away from, from worship, to try to take away from us being able to show the Lord how much we love Him, the ability to play musical instruments, all of these God has given to people so that we can lift up the King of kings and the Lord of lords, so we can love Him in a perpetual motion that we constantly are letting Him know how much we care for Him. So He said this is what He's going to do. God would also restore that united kingdom and plant His people in the promised land, and they should no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord <coughs> thy God. Excuse me. <coughs> Amos nine fifteen. Then the authority of their Messiah would extend to all nations, and God's people would enjoy unprecedented productivity. Indicated by Amos nine thirteen, where He described the land in terms of a Garden of Eden. Uh, their long sojourn in Babylon had taught this remnant of backsliding people that the terms of their covenant with God involved obligations, responsibilities, and obedience. At last, Israel's wholehearted love and service to God would become a temple in which God would dwell permanently. In Ezekiel 43, 7, it says, The place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my whole name shall the house of Israel no more defile. Amos helps us to understand that, that all, all of us, will be judged by the same standard, both the heathen and the people of God. The book of Revelation describes more fully the future judgment for all nations pronounced by Amos. The dead, small and great, stand before God. Death and hell and the sea will give up their dead, and they shall be judged every man according to their work. It is clear that the dead will stand at the great white throne judgment. However, instead of facing God at the great white throne judgment, the people of God are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have white throne judgment. You've got the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> give me a hand. What's the judgment seat of Christ? I'll let you go at this time. It's where we are rewarded. That's all I need. We've already made it. We got it. We've been judged already. It's a rapture of the church. We've already been judged. And so when the rapture takes place, that judgment, when we stand before the judgment seat, judgment seat was put up in the gladiatorial games that was set up in the middle of the arena, and the, the head of the games was there, and only the live gladiators... <laughs> got something you understand there was no judgments in as much as they already won judgment had already taken place because they killed their their opponent or hurt him real bad and so they were given rewards accordingly 
the judgment, the white throne judgment, all people, with exception of the church, will be judged. Dead will come out of the graves. Everybody will be judged. That's where people will go. And they made the statement before, you know, I've always, you know, I've had people talk about why the millennial reign? Why the millennial? Why would the millennial reign? Do you, can you tell me, answer me that? Yeah, your opinion. exactly right. That's exactly right. You see, that whole point in that thousand-year reign here on earth is to prove that someone stands before the white throne judgment, and they'll look and say, well, God, if there wasn't a devil, I could have served you. And by the millennial, the devil was locked up and released at the end, and he instantly is able to raise an army. So that lets you know that man, by his own nature, his own nature rebels against God. And so so you see that that you know the the very the very fact that that God is so loving and caring and merciful that we have that opportunity because he'll stand there and say, well, I I proved that that's not true. He gave us that. And there again, you know, we look at a thousand years and we look at it in terms of human nature, you know, humanity, how long we're going to live. And we can't imagine a thousand years. But during a millennial reign, a thousand years may seem like a week. So he's going to, he's going to have that particular time. So the final judgment of sin and sinners comes, the awesome specter of eternity in both glorious and terrible. And our lives will be divinely assessed according to our deeds. And God will send us into everlasting light or everlasting darkness. The description of these two opposite destinies or destinations are woefully inadequate. For John had to use earthly perception and words with depicting other worldly places. How how does a man, how does humanity able to, to grab a word that would describe the glories of heaven or the terror of hell? So he could only do with what he was able to grasp, but still it was, it was inadequate to be able to describe either place. So he did what he could to, and, and, and I think in our minds we need to understand that. You're talking about a place of outer darkness and hell where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Talking about a place where you talk, you think about hell. You think about a lake of fire. You think about uh, you think about an illumination of fire or molten lava. But it would illuminate, but it's not going to, because it's outer darkness where the darkness is complete, but the pain is like the pain of fire. Now you're in a lake of fire, but it's not putting any illumination out. So you're in complete darkness without any ability to understand what's up or what's down. Every time I think of that, I remember one time uh, diving. I, I, went, I went into, a, uh, this was at Lake Monroe. There was a quarry hole in the lake. And I went down into that quarry hole and uh, was messing around down there. It was, it was the middle of summer, but down, down, it was 50 foot deep, and it was black. It was pitch. And I, no light would penetrate it because of the silt. 
And then before long, I was swimming upside down and I did not know it. And the only way I realized it was I began to look at the bubbles that was coming out. The bubbles were going up this way. I was looking at the bubbles going up. And I got so disoriented down there in such darkness. And you realize in outer darkness that there's disorientation that you could never imagine. You could never, ever imagine how that, that would work. And then the glories of heaven. You know, I have not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the thing that God has prepared for them to love him. You know, we don't know. Gates of pearl, you know, walls of... The beauty that he could, he could come up with in his mind, you know, of gold and jasper and costly, that, 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 it goes beyond that because that's all he could come up with. So we have to look at that and understand. You know, for the redeemed, trying to imagine no sea in Revelation 21. No tears or death in Revelation 21, 4. And, and no need of sun or moon in Revelation 21, 23. And only begins to underscore what the writer meant by all things are new in Revelation 21, 5. Our, our, our glorious destination will forever fill our being with light. And for the glory of God will lighten it in Revelation 21, 23. And likewise, the revelator's description of the lake of fire cannot convey the use, the horror, the anguish of those who are cast into the fire to be tormented forever in the presence of Satan, in the presence of the Antichrist, according to Jude 6, and, and the false prophet. And they will exist in outer darkness. Again, Matthew 22, 13, 25, 30. Separated forever from the presence and the mercy of God. The very fact that you are separated from the feeling of love can you imagine? No, we can't imagine that because regardless of how bad that a person is, he's still surrounded with love. We live in an atmosphere of love. Even the most, the most terrible, the worst person out there, the terrorist who blows up the buildings and, and walks around with a, a bomb strapped to him, he's still surrounded with love. He can't imagine that. And in his own mind that he's been programmed that way and he thinks what he's doing is out of a spirit of love. The devil can do that to you. But the fact remains the reality of love is in our, our air. It's around us. It's everywhere. But when the church is taken out of here, that goes. So you can imagine the evil that happens in an atmosphere of love. Imagine the evil that will happen when love is gone. In the Word of God... It's a standard by which all the souls who have ever lived will be judged. His word warns his adversaries about impending judgment, fiery indignation. His mercy fills sinners with heart, heart for, excuse me, with fearful foreboding that they will someday face him in judgment and will not be unable to escape. Hebrews 10.27 actually tells us that. Yet his mercy will not let him send swift, fiery judgment without, without giving the sinner a space to repent. We're living and lived for the last 2,000 plus years. And the mercy and a, and a time of grace, a dispensation of grace. And so we have the space to repent. Any time that you feel that you know, things are overpowering you, that it just, you're, you're being pushed to your limit, Remember, God won't put more on you than you can bear. And also remember that we're living in a time of grace. Regardless of how bad things are, there's hope that is always there. And there's an answer that is soon to come. Stand with me right now, if you would. Let's raise our hands to the Lord and thank Him for His goodness and mercy. We praise You. We glorify You. We bless and honor You, Jesus, for all that You have done. God, let this sink into the hearts of each and every one of us. Let it be a blessing to us, God. But also allow it to awaken us, Jesus, to the possibilities that are before us. God, 
God, we thank you, and we even now say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I ask it now that you would touch in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things before you go. No service tonight, uh, Labor Day weekend. And also, uh, uh, there is not going, I think my wife might have made a mistake and told a few people we're having a departure.